Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. Hey there, friends. Someone once asked Agesilaus, what is the most important thing for boys to learn? And he responded, that which they will use when they become men. I love that. It's so simple. And it's really like, duh, isn't that obvious? Agesilaus didn't feel the need to elaborate past the obvious truth in most situations. And you get the sense that he wasn't afraid to repeat himself over and over again with these boring basics, just hammering them into your brain, what he thought about life and how he thought Sparta should be run, an army should be run. And this is something that you see in a lot of great leaders. Jeff Bezos is always saying a lot of the same old things in his Amazon shareholder letters, for instance. So yeah, this guy asks Agesilaus, what's the most important thing for boys to learn? And he responds, that which they will use when they become men. Pretty simple and true, right? It's a, it's a good principle to structure an education around. Um, well, a lot of Agesilaus' quotes and statements are really like that. They're just these plain speaking, prosaic, sometimes even trite observations on life, the Spartan way. And they reflect a serene confidence in his practical wisdom. Uh, but they also conceal a great engine of scheming and calculation that was contained in his mind. Still waters run deep, as they say. And it's one of the reasons why he's so fascinating and enigmatic, I think. But in the spirit of the original quote that we just talked about, in that comment about things that will be useful to you as an adult, in this episode, I want to focus on some things that you can take away from Agesilaus' life. Maybe they're obvious, maybe not so, uh, but they definitely bear repeating. Because, of course, at the cost of glory, the goal is not just to retell the lives of the greatest Greek and Roman leaders, but to get that knowledge and then do something about it. So that's what we'll be trying to help you do. First of all, though, I want to acknowledge the work of many who have gone before and books in particular, that I've used in compiling the Agesilaus biography here. In case you want to read further and or support the podcast by buying a copy. And I, I want to start with some suggestions of what I think you should read yourself if you want to get deeper into this first. So first and foremost, Plutarch's Life of Agesilaus is a great place to start. And there's a cool Penguin edition of uh, from the Penguin Classics series, Plutarch on Sparta. And it's got Lycurgus, Lysander, the two other biographies of Spartans, 
It's got a couple of quote books that he put together, some commonplace books, Spartan sayings, sayings of uh, Spartan women. Um, it's a pretty good find. The book also contains Xenophon's text, his treatise on the Spartan constitution, which is a really interesting read. Uh, so check that out, Plutarch on Sparta. Another great read, another book I'd recommend while we're on the subject of primary sources is Cornelius Nepos, who was a Latin author from the first century AD, uh, or maybe BC. Anyway, he's a predecessor of Plutarch and a kind of a mini Plutarch. He has this brief collection of biographies of great commanders from uh, especially the classical Greek period, and Agesilaus is in it. And so are a number of the other personalities that made it into this episode, like uh, the Athenian guerrilla commander Iphicrates and Cabrias, another general of the time, and most importantly, Pelopidas and Epaminondas. Now, Plutarch's Epaminondas is lost to history, unfortunately, but Cornelius Nepos has a biography of Epaminondas that's really worth checking out. And if you are going to get Cornelius Nepos for yourself, I recommend getting a hard copy by a, an author called Quintus Curtius, who did his own translation. That's his nom de plume, Quintus Curtius. And I put a link in the show notes. That's a great edition. It's got maps and notes and a nice Latin translation, tr nice English translation from the Latin. So check that one out. Another very important primary source, the most important primary source, really, for this period is Xenophon's writings, and in particular, for Greek politics of the period, his book, Hellenica. Um, I'll warn you, it is a difficult book to get through, but there's some amazing scenes in it, especially the first two books on the 30, which is not really what we were talking about in this episode, but um, he tells you kind of the end of the Peloponnesian War down to the Battle of Mantinea in the Hellenica. And I do recommend getting the landmark if you're going to get Xenophon. And finally, another important primary source for the life of Agesilaus is, of course, Diodorus of Sicily. Uh, that's available in the Loeb editions. And he's drawing on other historians from around this time, Theopompus and Ephorus. So those are the sources. And another great book, if you're interested in Sparta in general, is, of course, Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire on Thermopylae and that story, which I didn't use directly, but it's always been an inspiration as far as getting into the Spartan mindset for me. So I like those. Also, of scholarly works, I relied a lot on Paul Cartledge's book on Agesilaus, Agesilaus and the Crisis of Sparta. It's a tome. It's very thorough, very scholarly, kind of hard to navigate, uh, but it's definitely an education in Sparta in general and in the fourth century in particular, if you can get through it. Uh, Cartilage tends to be pretty critical of Agesilaus. So what you get in my take is an alternative. Um, also worth checking out is Buckler's book, Theban Hegemony. That is really good on the military history of Thebes, who he admires. Again, a scholarly book. Uh, less scholarly, but by a scholar, uh, very readable, is James Rahm's recent book, Sacred Band, on Thebes and on this period. It's very readable, very clear, coherent, enjoyable. James Rahm is a great writer. He's also a very good scholar, which is a rare combination. Uh, so that's a book worth checking out. And I also 
Learned a lot from Hamilton's book, Agesilaus and the Failure of Spartan Hegemony, which is a good narrative of Agesilaus and his times. He's also critical, uh, which you can kind of tell from the title, but uh, I definitely gained a lot from his psychological perspective on Agesilaus. So there you have it, books that I used. Some of them I recommend you reading, others only really if you want to go deep, but you have some options. And if you use the links in the show notes, those are Amazon affiliate links, so I get a little commission if you want to support the show. All right, so some takeaways here. We've already named a couple. At the end of episode one, we talked about how Agesilaus overcame his handicap, his limp, by a combination of laughing it off and working harder. We talked about how he didn't take traditional roles to be givens. He rethought what he wanted the Spartan kingship to be and how its relationship with the other powerful offices of the state of Sparta, like the ephors and the councilmen, what they should look like. And he did it the way that he thought was the best. And we also talked about how he was trustworthy to his friends. He kept his promises. He honored oaths and the bonds of guest friendship. So we've hit a few takeaways already. But here are a few more observations on how you can get something of Agesilaus's greatness in your life. And I've got four for you. One obvious one, and this is really a reiteration, is make friends early and often, and then look for opportunities to go out of your way to do favors for them. And this you just see throughout his life. And friendship is a Greek value in general. Every Greek of any standing knew the importance of having friends, not just within your own city, but in other cities, including with barbarians. But Agesilaus was especially good at it. And this gave him a position of security in the state and of influence internationally. And one of the secrets, I think, to keeping up a lifestyle that is extremely stressful and physically demanding seems to be having friends doing it with you. And that web of relationships that sustains your identity, you can't neglect these. It's really part of your work as a human. So, make friends early and often. Number two, another thing I think that we can observe here, Agesilaus really embodied the Spartan way of life to people. We talked about how Plutarch saw his spear when he visited Sparta hundreds of years later, and it looked like any other Spartan spear. Xenophon gives you many anecdotes on this head, how Agesilaus, down to his last, he lived humbly, he says, go look at his house, look at his door in Sparta, and you can see how the man lived, simply. And Xenophon goes on and he points out, Agesilaus was asked, people begged him, let's make a statue of you. And Agesilaus didn't allow that. He didn't allow a statue of himself to be made. There's no image of him left behind. Instead, he wanted to leave memorials of his soul in Xenophon's words, his psyche, that is, his mind. This means, in other words, he wanted to brand in people's minds what he did rather than sculpt an image of himself to remind them of what he looked like. And Xenophon calls this memorials of the soul. And this is a thing that a lot of Greeks at this period are interested in, the difference between having a physical monument made of you and what it actually is that you're going after when you want people to remember you. Uh, but this was very Spartan, 
to not glorify yourself as an individual, but sort of let your deeds speak for themselves and let people judge whether they wanted to remember you or not by those. In this way that he conformed in his own character to the values that he represented, that the values that people thought he should represent as a Spartan was one of the secrets to his effectiveness as a leader. So how do you get some of that in your own life? How do you transfer that? Well, here's how to do it. Don't say, I need to make values part of my personal brand. Because this is not about virtue signaling. It's about having hard, fast values. And great leaders are able to draw on this. Even the most cunning and ruthless leaders have something that they stand for. They have some kind of vision that they're trying to project into the world. They have things that they won't tolerate. If you don't have them already, first you got to figure out what they are. This can be challenging. I suggest don't go looking at what other people like. Don't go looking at what's popular. You have to really dig deep. You have to drill down to the bedrock. Drill down into your own tradition, your personal history, the best examples that have shaped you. Go to religion, even if you aren't religious. What religion were your ancestors? They were something, for sure. Well, what are the values that they lived by? That can be a good place to start. It's got to be something kind of deep and timeless, bigger than yourself. Well, Agesilaus was able to lead from this position of strength and confidence in his own way of life. And this was really essential to the whole project of Spartan leadership in and Spartan hegemony in Greece. This allows you, this conformity with your values allows you to become something bigger than your individual brand and to represent something higher and more expansive than even your native city or country or the company you work for or lead or even founded. Uh, but just remember, it can't be smarmy and fake and taken up on the moment. People are going to see through it. You need to uncover it rather than making it up. Okay, so number three, and this could easily go unremarked, but I think one big lesson of Agesilaus is stay in shape. Literally, stay physically healthy. Agesilaus was leading his army up and down Greece and then up and down Egypt. Egypt in his 80s. Think about it. What kind of life was Agesilaus living at age 40 to ensure that he could perform like he did at age 80? What kind of routine did he have at age 50 or 60? Well, it's the stuff that we've already talked about here and there. Eating simple, reasonable food, not drinking much, sleeping outside on the hard ground, all of these little challenges, being indifferent to heat and cold. In the moment, these little mental tests, you might think of them as every day, when you have the option to take it easy, to enjoy yourself, but you don't, that mental habit in the moment makes you more hungry and eager for the bigger challenges, the real challenges, the important ones that you'll face in your day-to-day -day life now, but it also strengthens your system. Your body responds to those challenges by becoming the sort of body that can hold up against challenges, right? To, so you have to make serious demands of it continually. So think of that. Think of Agesilaus the next time you want to chicken out on that cold shower or on that last rep at the gym or that fight that you need to fight, etc.
Number four, finally, be willing to work through intermediaries. Part of this is just letting your subordinates shine, which any manager or leader ought to do. And this always reflects well on you on some level. But plenty of Agesilaus's agents or intermediaries weren't really his direct reports at Sparta. Remember, the Spartan king is not a monarch. It's something else. He's just an important politician there and uh, an important military leader, but he's not the monarch. This practice for him is really, I think, about giving the greatest glory to Sparta. And to do that, he let his intermediaries have most of the honor when they won victories. And if you do this, it means you'll also be building up a support network for yourself if you suffer defeat because you've got more people committed and implicated in the cause that you're fighting for. So if there's a cause that you really genuinely care about, the more deeply you believe in it, the more metaphysically committed you are to seeing it through, well, the more it makes sense to get others interested in the problem and committed to it and to your particular vision of it, maybe, and to get them taking credit for the wins, even. And for Agesilaus, this higher cause was, of course, Sparta and its way of life. And this made a lot of sense for Agesilaus because even though he was internally a very forceful man and had an incredible amount of energy and competitiveness, you get the sense that he wasn't that imposing in person, that he wasn't a great speaker necessarily. Uh, he wasn't necessarily a flashy, winning, charismatic person. He wasn't maybe even magnetic like, like Lysander was, uh, but he had the ability to forge relationships and to leverage them and to influence people to get on his team with other strategies. And he preferred to work behind the scenes when he could. In order to do this effectively, if you're ambitious, you're going to have to find some cause that's greater than yourself again. So those are my four main takeaways for Agesilaus, and I know that you could come up with many more, and it's worth revisiting Agesilaus's life and the life of all of these heroes of Plutarch over and over again throughout our lives. And yes, there were things to criticize, too, about Agesilaus. I think we've pointed out many of them already, and we'll hear from Plutarch on some of these topics when we get to our comparison of Pompey and Agesilaus coming soon after we do the life of Pompey. But before we end, I want to answer the question of what happened after Agesilaus died. Well, the short answer is the end of Agesilaus's life becomes the beginning of the story of Alexander the Great because Philip of Macedon, Alexander's father, rises to the throne of Macedonia the very year after Agesilaus dies it was maybe even the year of Agesilaus' death. His death is not easy to date precisely. There's some debate about what exactly the year was. But anyway, it was around that time. 359 BC is when Philip accedes to the throne. And the story of how Philip built Macedonia from a borderlands backwater into a military powerhouse capable of conquering the Persian Empire is another story. But... He was operating, making his rise in the world that Agesilaus built. And even before Agesilaus died, Philip, as a young prince, he was educated at Thebes, actually. He was a political hostage there uh, for some reason. 
during the height of Theban power from 368 to 365 BC. And so he has also, as his tutors in the art of warfare and diplomacy, because he's the young prince of the Macedonians, he's getting to you know, rub shoulders with all of the greatest Theban leaders of the time. Well, as his tutors, he has Polypidus and Epaminondas, who were basically his hosts at Thebes. And so in a way, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father, has Agesilaus as a sort of, well, trainer. He's a sort of sparring partner in war and politics as he watches Epaminondas and Pelopidas go toe-to-toe with this most influential and aggressive Spartan king in history. And when Philip eventually goes on to make his plans to lead the Greeks in a great Persian expedition, he's looking at the grand vision that Lysander and Agesilaus first worked out about 40 years earlier, 50 years earlier. And you could say that he learned from Agesilaus's example too, that in order to unite the Greeks, Philip knew he would have to subdue them first, even conquer them in some cases. I'll get to Philip and Alexander soon enough, but in the meantime, check out the biographies put together by my friend Ben Wilson at the How to Take Over the World podcast if you want to hear that story. It should be noted, though, that on that great expedition to Persia, the Spartans declined to participate They refused, in the end, to join Philip's Panhellenic League, and they insisted on keeping their own independence. And while the Macedonians were building their military machine, Agesilaus' son, Archidamus III, he turned his attention west to Sparta's colony at Tarentum in southern Italy, where he died fighting the Italians on behalf of the Greeks of Tarentum in 338. He was, of course, not the first nor the last Greek king to get involved in southern Italy. You can listen to our episode on the life of Pyrrhus, who came on the scene only a generation after Archidamus III died. Well, that's a wrap. Coming soon, the life of Pompey, who is Agesilaus' parallel lives counterpart in the Roman world. But before that, we'll continue in the next episode with book five of seven of Xenophon's Anabasis. Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Till next time.